You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, good morning. Glad to have you with us today. If you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. We looked at the first six verses um, two weeks ago, and last week we had uh, Application Sunday. And so we jump back into uh, chapter 19 and verse 7 today is where we'll be. Uh, verses 1 through 6, you'll remember if you were with us two weeks ago, uh, the Lord comes to Moses and prompts him and reminds him of what he has already done for the children of Israel, how he's already provided and spared them uh, from the Egyptians, how he carried them through the wilderness uh, on eagles' wings. Um, how he has brought them to the mountain, just as he promised Moses he would do prior to him going to Pharaoh. Um, And in light of all these things that he's done for Israel, he now calls them to be obedient to him, to enter into covenant relationship with him, to um, essentially trust that whatever he says going forward, they're going to be willing to do. Um, And so he gives that instruction to Moses. And so we pick up in verse 7 with what Moses does with that information. It says, So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and, to look and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, <clears throat> come to a passage like this and you're like, what, what, what relevance does this have for today, right? Like you, you can read through this and you see a scene that feels so foreign and so distant to us, right? Uh, we live a long time after this historical event. This happened thousands and thousands of years ago. So we live 
a long time after it. And then we live a long ways away from Mount Sinai, right? Like we don't know exactly where it is, but uh, most archaeologists have a pretty good feel for the, the general area that this mountain would be in the Middle East. And I mean, Sovereign Hope's nowhere near it, right? So what, what relevance does a passage like this have for us today? We're talking about a scene that happened thousands of years ago. We're talking about at a location where most of us will never visit in our lifetime. I think it's helpful for us to think about um, how we sometimes view present situations in light of past situations, right? Like you've, you've probably, for, for our parents, you've probably had situations where you relayed to your child maybe a struggle that they're having right now, how the struggle was more real in the past, right? Like um, I remember, you know, for me, I didn't have a computer. I didn't have a, a cell phone until I was out of college. Um, and, and the idea of having one in college seemed crazy to me because those things were just too expensive. Like there was no way I could afford that. I remember late high school coming down into the basement. My sister was working on a computer, and I said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm talking to some kids at school. And I was like, what, what do you mean you're talking to some kids at school on the computer? And she's like, yeah, this little window here, we're, we're chatting back and forth. And my mind was just blown. Like, I had no idea what this AOL-type messenger was. And now you've got, like, fourth graders who have their own devices, who have their own cell phones, and it's just, like, so different today than it was uh, back then, um, I felt like I was time traveling. I felt like when I walked down in the basement, I had jumped into the future and was seeing technology that, that shouldn't be allowed kind of a thing. It was just crazy to me that you could talk to somebody in that manner. Um, Nate Bargatze, who's a, a comedian, he has a, a bit of one of his routines where he talks about if he were to time travel into the past, we wouldn't have to worry about him uh, divulging too many secrets of the present because while he could tell them about the internet, he would have no way to really explain what it is he's even trying to talk about. He's like, I know we have certain things right now, but if I went back to the 1920s, I couldn't really tell them how to get to that point, right? He's like, I know the present, but I don't really know how to relay that to somebody in the past. I want for us to see this passage in a similar way, thinking about like, past and present, and what's taking place here. I want us to see, one, how to understand the past so that we can appreciate the present, right? Like, I remember, like, you had to do dial-up to get on the internet back when I first was exposed to it. You had to wait and hope that you could get on the internet. You had to hope that you weren't out of minutes, right? Like, I remember asking my dad to buy more AOL minutes so that I could get online to check ESPN.com, our kids don't understand that today, right? Like their, their biggest concerns are whether there's Wi-Fi or not, or do I have to use data on the device, right? I want us to understand the past, much like we ask our kids sometimes to understand the struggles of the past, to better understand the present. Because we're going to see there's some differences in what takes place in this passage versus what we enjoy today as New Testament believers. Understanding the past to better understand the present. But then I also want us to understand the present a little bit better today too, so that if we were to maybe have conversations with Old Testament saints, which we won't, but if we were, that we would be equipped to know how to explain it. But even more so, we will have conversations with unbelievers, right? How do we help them to see the relevance of the Old Testament in light of today? How do we understand the present in light of the past to better help them to understand what it means to relate to a holy God? So that's what we're going to kind of look at today, our summary sentence uh, for us this morning. When comparing the Old Testament to the New Testament, the holiness of God has not changed, 
but the way we interact with the holy God has because of the satisfying, justifying work of Jesus Christ. When comparing the Old Testament to the New Testament, the holiness of God has not changed, but the way we interact with a holy God has because of the satisfying, justifying work of Jesus Christ. For our kids, Jesus makes it possible for us to enter the throne room of God, but it is still the throne room of God. We're going to see that there's some differences about today than from the past, but we're also going to see there's some things that haven't changed. We're still worshiping the same God, and he still possesses the same level of holiness as he did in the past, right? Maybe you worship differently today than you did in previous church experiences years and years ago, right? Like, I remember growing up, like, it would have been unfathomable for somebody to preach wearing blue jeans. It would have been unfathomable for somebody to show up on a Sunday morning in shorts, maybe Sunday night, but probably pressing it, that was more for Wednesday night, right? Like, you could wear them on Wednesday night. Like, things have changed culturally, right? Like, even uh, the amount of jobs that require a, a man to wear a tie has changed drastically over the years, which has probably shaped what is and isn't viewed as church attire today, right? Things have changed in the ways that we worship, but that's culturally, right? We worship differently than people in the Old Testament, but it's not a cultural change. Like, there's been fundamental changes that have taken place. Why do we not offer sacrifices? Why do we not have sectioned off portions of our church where only some of you can go and then church leadership's permitted to go in other places where you can't. Those things were true of the Old Testament and they have changed, but not because our culture changed, right? Like we didn't reach a point where we said, you know what? All of y'all should be able to come into this section of the church building, right? Like that's not a cultural thing. That's a fundamental change that God worked through Jesus Christ, which altered the way that we interact with his holiness. There was a way that it was done in the past. There's a way that it's done in the present now. And my hope is that through a passage like this, we can understand where the differences are, where the similarities are, and what it means for our upcoming week this week. The idea of this passage that we've just read is that God is coming, but you can't get too close, right? Like he announces, I'm coming. I'm coming in three days to to dwell on this mountain. And there's gonna be a, a worshipful experience where he is going to give them his law. But there's also this idea that as I come, you can't get too close, right? Like you're not going to be able to touch. You're going to have to keep your distance. We've talked before about God's transcendence and God's eminence. What do we mean by that? God's transcendence is that he is above his creation. He's uniquely separated from his creation. He's uniquely different from his creation. But there's also the idea of God's eminence, God's eminence means that there's a closeness that God has to his creation, an intimacy that he desires with his creation. And you see both kind of existing in a state of tension right here. There's the holy, separated, totally unique God who's going to come down in the form of a storm on this mountain, right? He's, He's totally different than everybody in Israel, totally different than any other creation on the earth. And yet in all of this coming, he's saying, I want to be in relationship with you. I want to express my love to you. I want to give you instructions on how to express your love to me. There's a transcendence. I'm way different than you. There's an eminence. I want to be with you, right? 
But there's a tension there because it can't come about the way that we might would want. There's a, there's a need to stay uh, a healthy uh, distance from him. There's a desire to be close, but a necessity for maintaining separation. Because while God is holy, man is not, or at least not yet in this section. What's helpful for us is to remember that God's already communicated his love and the assurance of it, right? I rescued you from Egypt. I carried you through the wilderness. I've provided for you. I've been making promises to you. Why is that important? Because it communicated to the people, right, before he unleashes this holiness. Because this holiness is about to be unleashed on this mountain, right? And the people are fearful and they're trembling at the holiness of God. But what do they need to remember? This holy God loves me. This holy God provides for me. This holy God wants to be in relationship with me. That's super helpful in the midst of of a state of fear to remember that while I'm scared, I don't have to be scared, right? The idea that God loves his people. He's created us for intimacy with him, and he's been at heart at work since we broke that intimacy in the Garden of Eden to make it right once again. And this is another step in that direction. We're early still in the history of the earth. We're early still in the history of of God's revelation to his people. But what we're seeing thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago is that God has always been working to reunite his people with himself. It started in the Garden of Eden when he came before uh, Adam and Eve and said, hey, you could be dead right now, but I've killed an animal, right? And I've created a way for you not to die, for you to live at least long enough for, for children to take place so that a people for me can be preserved. And I'm going to rescue that people. And this is another step in that process of him rescuing his people back to him. We see consecration, this idea of separation for the Israelite people. They're going to have to do some things for themselves to get ready to meet God. Then we also see this limited setting for experiencing his presence, right? They can only go so far. They can only get so close. And what we see is God preparing them for tabernacle worship, temple worship, where we've already talked about today, where there were sections that the common folks could come to, and then there were other sections where they were not permitted to go. Why? Because of God's holiness and man's sin. There's two clear things that I want you to see before we jump into the passage today that are needed to to experience a holy God, and these things haven't changed. To experience a holy God, there has to be personal cleansing, and there has to be a mediator. There has to be personal cleansing that takes place in somebody before they can encounter a holy God and live, and there has to be a mediator, one who goes between the holy God and the sinful individual. All right, let's jump in and see in our text today how this breaks down, Um, and and hopefully again we'll see why, why, why do we need to know the past, how does it relate to the present, And then how can we understand the present a little bit better today based on what we learned about the past? All right, number one, understand that God and his holiness have not changed, right? God and his holiness have not changed. He is still a God who demands faithful obedience. He is still a God who demands faithful obedience, Back here at the beginning of this section, he had already communicated to Moses the the call upon the people to be a set-apart holy nation for him, to be his treasured possession. Moses takes that word to the people, and how do the people respond? Verse 8, they answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. 
His holiness demands faithful obedience. The word of God is to be heard, understood, and yielded to with a desire for complete obedience to it. We see that type of response from Israel here. They say yes to God. There's a combination then of God's word and his being, his character, who he is, that's meant to generate this ongoing belief. He's going to come in holiness to create belief, right? He says um, in verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. We've already said that there's motivation for Israel and for us to obey God, to listen to God, to yield to God because of what he's done for us, right? He kind of led with that, right? Like, I'm the God who rescued you from Egypt. I'm the God who carried you through the desert. I'm the God who gave you food and water when you had none. Obey me. Now he's going to come in a, in a, in a semi-visible format, right? Like they're not going to actually see God, but they're going to see evidence and elements of his holiness and his majesty. The idea being now that, yes, you should follow him for what he's done for you, but you also must follow him simply for who he is in all of his majesty. His presence on this mountain where he can visibly be seen giving the law is going to provide assurance, what? That Moses didn't create this religion. You ever wondered how like some of these other religions that people follow, how they're very man-generated, where man supposedly had interactions with God or an angel and this new direction was birthed out of that conversation. Coincidentally enough, only the starter of that religion had access to that information, right? Think about what God's doing here. God says, and we don't think about this in terms of what if you were there, what would you be experiencing? Because a lot of times the way movies and, and cartoons and whatnot about this picture, it is that Moses does all the conversing with God and the people are simply left to wait the whole time. God says, I'm actually going to come in such a way where the people can hear me talking to you. Why is that important? He says, because I want them to believe you forever. I don't want it to ever be questioned, did Moses make this whole thing up? Did Moses just make this whole thing up? Like, did Moses just think this would be a fun way to, like, manipulate a group of people to live a certain way and to follow him? No. Like, that, that never has been questioned in Jewish history. Why? Because the whole lot of people were here at the foot of the mountain to know this is way bigger than Moses, right? Like, like Moses didn't come up with this information. This came from Yahweh himself. God's holiness demands faithful obedience, demands it from us too, right? Like this God hasn't changed. So as you sit here today and we talk about application later on in the sermon, like God's word still speaks to us today from the holy mountain of God. Will we obey it? Will we believe it in such a way where we say, you know what, God's done so much for me and God is so majestic and holy and awesome and different than me how can I not yield to him? How can I not listen to him? That's the stage that's being set here. Number two, <clears throat> God's holiness still demands faithful preparation. God's holiness still demands faithful preparation. There's nothing unique, special, or set apart about Mount Sinai except for the fact that God's presence makes it unique, special, and set apart. There wasn't anything special about this mountain. 
It's why we don't feel a need to travel there today. That's not where we connect with God. It's not where the children of Israel would ongoingly connect with God. It became an important mountain for a temporary purpose, and that was for God to come down in his holiness and give his people his word. Other than that, the mountain's not special. God could have picked any mountain to do this at. He just chose to pick the mountain that we see in this text. Nothing uniquely special about it. It's not set apart. God chose this area for this purpose, and then the mountain ceased to be special, right? You could go there today, you could travel today, and there would be no barrier like we see in the text that says you can't go up on the mountain or touch it because you might die. You wouldn't get there and find guards stationed around it like we read about in the text here that says, if you try to go across the barrier, we'll shoot you on sight and your body will just lay to rest there. We're not allowed to move it. Right, like there's nothing uniquely special about the mountain. What made it special for this time purpose was God's presence. And what we're being told here is that Israel won't be permitted to come casually before their God. They must prepare as best they can to stand below his holy presence. Right, like Moses doesn't shoot an announcement out on their version of the realm at the time and say, hey guys, In three days, we're going to gather at the mountain. Hope you can make it, right? Like, check your calendar, see what's going on. If there's nothing else going on, you're invited to come be a part of this. If you got something else going on, don't worry about it. No, it's like, hey, in three days, this is happening, and we got to use the next three days to get ready for this. And everybody has to have buy-in on it. There was preparation that took place, preparation that was needed to be in the presence of God's holiness. Number three. God's holiness still creates fearful anticipation. It still creates fearful anticipation. Here's the thing. If this God hasn't changed, then we need to be alert and awake this morning about how we interact with this God. There's a dangerousness about God that's communicated here. To not understand his holiness could lead to death for Israel, right? Like, there's instructions that are given here. Verse 12 You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, then they shall come up to the mountain. I mean, imagine being a parent at this time, or even a shepherd at this time. Right? Like, you you would have woken up for the next three days saying, like, we got to teach, we got to condition our people to know they can't go over there. They can't go past that marker, right? Sometimes maybe as parents, you take your kids to a new setting and you have to kind of rope off the parameters for them in their minds. Like, hey, here's where you can play. Here's where you cannot play. And then you hope, you hope they listen, right? And, and, and if, you lose, if you lose your eye contact with them, maybe they don't, Right? A parent, like for the next three days, is probably having to sit regularly with their kids and say, hey, remember what we said, don't touch the mountain. Like maybe you've touched it prior to this day that's coming up. You can't touch it on that day, right? It's going to be a different type of day. There's a fearful anticipation. God's presence, what we read about when he shows up, right? On verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. This this storm basically shows up on this mountain. 
And there's, there's a fear that it kind of brings with it. There's thunders and lightnings and earthquakes and trumpet blasts, and the people are rightfully trembling. Why does God do it this way? Why does God come in this manner? I think the point of this whole spectacle is to help Israel see that in coming close to them, there's still a great distance that exists between them. Right? Think about like, like Scripture uses the language of God coming down to man. Right? We think of Jesus coming down, lowering himself, Philippians 2 talks about. Becoming a man, humbling himself, bringing himself from a lofty position to a lower position. That's the stature that we see because of man's sin and where God sins or where God exists outside of, of man and his creation. He's that transcendent one, right? He has to come to man. The news that God's coming, wow, like Yahweh's going to come and visit with us. This is incredible. Like we've been to worship services before in Egypt and, and now we get our own. Well, God's communicating that, hey, yes, I'm coming to you, but man, there's a lot of distance that still exists between us. You can't get too close. You can't touch. You can't even see me. And that distance probably felt even greater just with the, the horrific scene of the thunder and the lightning and the earthquakes and the uncertainty. It helps remind us of the impossibility of sinful man ever being able to approach a holy God without help. And there's a dangerous, danger, dangerousness about God that still exists today. Think about what Hebrews 10.31 says. It talks about what? It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. There's still a dangerousness to God. Now, we treat him very casually, right? We take a casual approach to worship and friendship with Jesus that oftentimes we forget that we're in the throne room, that we're, we're worshiping a deity. We are worshiping God. Jesus is not just a buddy. He's not just a man. He's not just a good teacher. He is the son of God. He is God himself. This God who presents himself so holy on the mountain, we can't become so casual in our approach to God that we, we, we become casual in our response to him, as though it's optional, as though, as though it can be taken or leaving, right? Um, there's a dangerousness about him here. Revelation 4, 5, lest we think that this has changed, right? Because while we may practically worship different in this building than you did at a previous building, Right? There are things that have not changed about the way we worship God today and even into the future. Look what Romans or Revelation 4, 5 says. John getting a, a glimpse of heaven and the throne room. It says, from the throne came what? Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was as it a sea of glass like crystal. I mean, he's drawing up a picture that seems pretty similar to Mount Sinai, right? Like, like, there's a holiness that is still intact. It has not changed. We still worship a holy God. He didn't, he didn't lessen his standards of holiness as time passed, right? Like, he didn't, he didn't change it and say, hey, you used to not be able to wear this, but now you can wear this because, I mean, I mean who cares anymore, right? Like, culture's changed. Like, let's just do it this way now. No, like, he's still the same holy God. And we see that picture in Revelation. We need to understand that God and his holiness have not changed. He still demands faithful obedience. He still demands faithful preparation. And he still creates a fearful anticipation for us if we look to see him correctly. Number two, understand that man and his sinfulness have not changed. Man and his sinfulness have not changed either. So we go back to Exodus chapter 19. 
And we see some aspects of man that require that separation, right? God says, uh, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. There's preparation that has to place, take place here. Number one, man needs cleansing to be present with God. Man needs cleansing to be present with God. Now, there's, there's no instructions here about the children of Israel offering sacrifices. Why? They haven't been given parameters for their sacrificing yet, right? There's, there's no guidance or direction given about how to do some type of inward cleansing, right? There's no, there's no call to uh, personal repentance. There's no call to any type of reconciliation with God. But there is a picture given to help them understand that they're dirty, that they're not right before a holy God. And so he commands them to go through this washing ritual that's supposed to take place over the days leading up to his visit. Right? They're commanded to, to wash their garments, to consecrate themselves, to change and alter their daily living in preparation to meet God. That's what would have had to take place, right? Like they got to wash these garments and they didn't, they didn't have the amount of garments that we have, right? So you could look at your laundry today and say, I've got enough to get me through the first couple of days of this week so I don't have to do laundry today. Others of you may say, man, I exhausted my laundry this week. I got to wash today to have anything to wear this week. For them, it was we all got to do laundry because we don't all have a lot of clothing, right? And they probably haven't had a chance to do a whole lot of washing recently. Why? Well, because we know they haven't been able to find a lot of water recently, right? And the water they have found, what have they been doing with it? Drinking it, right? So provisions being made and and God's saying like, you got to wash your garments. You got to get cleaned up to come meet with me. So they're going to have to alter and change some ways of their daily living because not only do they need to start washing, they need to keep it clean, because it ain't, it ain't about just throwing it in the washing machine and the dryer the night before and being able to wake up and roll with it. There, there's, there's a process at this point, right? Like we're blessed to have washing machines and dryers. And it wasn't that long ago where people didn't have those things and it was a major luxury. You go way back to this point, I mean, washing machine and dryer, like can you imagine going back in time and explaining that to the children of Israel? I certainly couldn't tell them how it works, like Nate Bargatze. Like I wouldn't have a clue how to tell them how that thing works. I would just tell them, we got these awesome boxes in the future that do all of that for us. They didn't have that. So they got to make preparations to do it, right? And so God tells them, you got a couple of days to get this right. They were to wash these clothes. It was meant to be an outward symbol of an inward condition. They were dirty and in need of cleansing. But they also, number two, need consecration to be present with God. Not just a cleansing, but a consecration. Men and women, particularly husbands and wives, are meant to be separated during this time of preparation. Seems kind of odd, right? Like it's just kind of a verse that's thrown in there when it says, um, verse 15, he said to the people, be ready for the third day, do not go near a woman. Right? There's a a fasting that's supposed to take place between the husband and wife here in anticipation of it as well. Why? Well, you can read later about the, uh, the cleanliness of that activity back at this time, right? And, and the need to, to wash garments and whatnot after that too. So if you're in the midst of washing garments, he's saying, we got to cut some things out that would create more dirty garments. And he said, so you got to change some of your activity, right? There's a cleanliness that's at play here. Um, but there's also an aspect of devotion where 
where God's saying like, the, the intimacy that you need to crave and desire over the next couple of days is not with your husband or wife, it's with me. He wants to create this anticipation where it's like, this is the, the true intimacy that I need and need to desire right now. Cleanliness is certainly a factor. Devotion is probably a bigger factor. Um, that God needs to be seen as the supreme attachment for both the husbands and the wives in this, in this setting. I think number three is a, is a piece, too, that, um, that kind of jumped out to me as I'm thinking about what has Israel been exposed to in worship? What are they going to see when they get into the land of Canaan around them, too? I think God wants to send a point right here that relations between a man and a woman are not part of worship to a holy God. If you know anything about pagan rituals at that time, it was a huge part of their worship, right? Their their intimacy with, with their gods that they worship, they tried to express with intimacy with themselves. And God's like, that's not how it works for me. That's not how it works for me. It's not going to be a part of our worship at all. You're going to have true intimacy with me that is not expressed in that way. And so I think he's sending an early message that our worship's going to look different. It's not going to be a place where passion and pleasure run rampant. It's going to be devotion to me. It's going to be yielding to me as your creator. And we're too called to consecrate ourselves as an act of worship to God. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verse 1 tells us this. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We as Christians are, are, are responsible to, to live out our holiness as saved people, right? And even 1 Corinthians 7, 5 would call us to temporary separation between a husband and wife physically, what? For spiritual purposes. So that's even something that you kind of see carried over into the New Testament as well. Not because that relationship's evil, not because it's bad. Obviously, that, that, that was instituted before the fall. That's, that's a God-ordained, created thing, a gift from God for husband and wife. But it, it is supposed to be something that doesn't supersede a relationship with him. We don't, we don't make gifts gods. And I think that's the message he sends here by saying, we're going to clean ourselves. We're going we're to withhold ourselves in anticipation of this great day when I show up. Okay, so we're seeing some things that haven't changed. God's holiness hasn't changed. Uh, man's sin has not changed. Those are things that are still true today. But here's the big point, number three. The mediator and his sacrifice has changed. Like, like, that's the point that we want to really sit down on and dwell upon as we wrap this up. The mediator has changed, and the sacrifice that he offers has changed too. Look, look what God tells Moses that he's supposed to do. He says in verse 10, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. Verse 14 says, So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. Now, it doesn't say that he offered a sacrifice, but that's the implication. For Moses to consecrate the people as they're making their own attempts to consecrate themselves, it's most likely through the means of offering a sacrifice. So think about this. Moses is God's ordained leader. He's the one that he's talked through in the burning bush. That's where he gets his instructions. 
Moses comes down and gives instructions to the people, says, I've just talked with God. Here's what we need to do. He wants me to consecrate you. I'm going to offer a sacrifice on your behalf. You're going to wash your garments. You're going to stay clear of each other. We're going we're to build this anticipation for him to come. And then when he comes, we can't get anywhere near him. Like after everything is said and done, after all the preparations are made, including the great Moses offering a sacrifice, the best Moses can say is, come right here, but don't come any closer. Why? Because he's not the perfect mediator. Because Moses is sinful too. And that animal sacrifice isn't what's needed to to satisfy the wrath of a holy God. We need the mediator to change. If we have any hopes of entering into the throne room of God, we need the mediator to change. And number one, it does. Jesus removes the physical barriers between a holy God and sinful man. Israel was only permitted to come to the base of the mountain. There were barriers needed to ensure they didn't step foot on it or touch it. We've already read in verses 12 and 13 that death was promised if anyone violated this level of separation. And even after all the preparation, they still couldn't undo the need to stay back, right? And think about it, like like God's warning them. He's, He's given them warnings. Moses has given the warnings. And then God comes and Moses comes and says, okay, like we're ready, give it to us. And what does God say? Go down and warn the people again, lest they break through the Lord to look and, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. What's Moses say? Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Like, you, like Moses made all these preparations. He's given the communication. The people seem ready to go. And, and he goes up and God says, for real, go back down there and tell them like they can't come close. You're like, Moses is like, why do I have to do that? Like I've already told them. Why do I have to do that? God's like, go tell them. So he doesn't answer the question. So we're kind of left to speculate a little bit. I tell you, I think a couple of reasons why Moses has to, or Moses is told to repeat these warnings. Um, I think they need to understand that the rules aren't changing. If you read through the passage and start to calculate how many times Moses is coming up and down that mountain relaying messages, if you're just the casual Israelite, you might be like, what's so special about that guy? Why does he get to go up and down, and why can't I go up and down, right? God wants to make sure that the rules stay intact. They're not changing, right? Um, I think, too, the Israelites need this because of their depravity. Uh, they're not great at following directions, Right? I was in the lunchroom this week with our 6th uh, and 7th graders. We've tried to implement this thing at the end where like the last five minutes, last three, four minutes, like we don't talk so that we can get them out in an orderly fashion. And so I'm up there talking about not talking and kids are talking, right? And I get them all finally quiet and I'm like, for real, we don't talk during this time. I stop talking and they start talking, right? And I, had to, I, stopped and I said, for real, we're not talking. That doesn't mean start talking when I stop talking. It means that we're not talking the rest of the time in here. But you've had 30 minutes to talk. Now is the time to stop talking because your teachers need to get you out of this lunchroom back to your classroom. They still start talking, right? It's depravity, right? We need constant, constant reminders that we can't do certain things. And even in the constant reminders, we still do those things. And so God's like, for real, I don't want anybody dying by touching this mountain. Go tell them again. But Jesus changes all of this for us. You can touch anything in here, right? Like you're not going to die. Jesus changes everything. You didn't bring one animal with you today, hopefully. My kids, my boys, maybe 
have something in the car, I don't know. Uh, you shouldn't have brought in, you didn't need to bring any animals. Maybe you did, but you didn't have to, right? Because there's no animal sacrifices that are taking place today. Jesus changed all of that. When he dies on the cross, the Bible tells us that the holy of holies, the, the curtain that separated man from God was torn once and for all, never to be sewn back again, like never to, to, to go back to a previous state. This is different. This, this does lack some relevance for us today in the sense that we don't worship God this way. We don't have to fear his holiness in the same way because Jesus has changed it for us. That's the glorious truth of the gospel that his perfection, his wrath-satisfying death changes it for us. He leads us into the Holy of Holies without fear. He breaks down the physical barriers between us and God. Look what Hebrews chapter 10 says. Hebrews is such an incredible book. Like you, you would do well to be kind of reading through Hebrews as we're working through Exodus now, particularly, because so much ties into Jesus fulfilling what we're going to be looking at in the giving of the law. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, I'm telling you, there was no confidence at Mount Sinai. No confidence about entering the holy places with God on Mount Sinai. They were told they couldn't. Now the author of Hebrews says, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us. How? Through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Not just our clothes, our hearts have been sprinkled clean. Our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. What's that day? The day where he returns in all of his holiness and glory. And when he does, we won't be fearful of it. We won't have to tremble of it. We can run to him in confidence because we've been sprinkled clean. Our hearts are clean. Our bodies are clean. We've been set free. We've been set free by the work of Jesus Christ. He doesn't remove the awness of being in the presence of a holy God one day. He just makes it possible for us to enjoy it. We still may find ourselves in a throne room in heaven one day like John did, where we're seeing claps of thunder and flashes of lightning, right? But we're going to walk into that and be like, this is awesome, right? Like it's not going to be like, oh my gosh, I can't be here. It's going to be, I can be here because of Jesus. And this is incredible that I can be in the presence of a holy God, even though I know I'm not perfect, and yet I am now because of Jesus. Number two, not just the physical barriers, but he removes the human barriers between a holy God and a sinful man as well. In where we're reading in the past, only Moses and Aaron could get close. Everyone else, even other priests, required to stay back. Jesus changes that too. God's holiness communicates a need for a mediator, but he also promises a better mediator. We fast forward into Exodus chapter 20. As God gives the, the Ten Commandments, look what the people of Israel say when they kind of get to that point. They say in verse uh, 19, or verse 18, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off and they said to Moses, you can speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. 
Listen to Moses' statement. He said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. He kind of contradicts himself, right? He's like, don't fear the fear that you have, right? Like, he's like, you're, you're right to be afraid, but you don't have to be afraid, but you should still be afraid of what you're looking at, right? And, and that fear is going to drive you to obedience. Don't be afraid of being afraid. It keeps you loyal. So the people are saying like, hey, we need somebody to be our mediator. Like, we're not good enough to interact with this God. And you fast forward to Deuteronomy 18 as Moses is, is kind of looking at the end of his ministry. Look what he kind of promises that God's going to do. He says in verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken, and I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Is he talking about an immediate prophet? Sure. Is he talking about Jesus? Absolutely. Right? Like all the prophets and the priests and the kings in the Old Testament point to Jesus. And so God says, Moses, they're right to ask for a mediator. They're right to ask for somebody to stand in the gap between me and them. You're not going to be that person permanently. I'm going to raise up someone else and someone else and someone else and someone else. And eventually I'm going to raise someone else up who will permanently be the mediator who stands between me and them and gives them access to me. If we see the past and we see the struggles of the past, being the people of God and yet not being able to really be close to him fully because there was a sin barrier that hadn't fully been dealt with. I mean, it gives us a much greater appreciation for what we enjoy today, that we don't have to talk in these terms about how to approach God. You didn't have to wash your clothes. Hopefully you did, but you didn't have to if you came today, right? You didn't have to bring an animal sacrifice with you. Jesus has removed all of those needs He's made it possible for us to enjoy fellowship with God without all of this extra stuff. He came to fulfill all of it for us. And he removes the need for a human mediator because the God-man, Jesus, serves as the ultimate mediator. Hebrews chapter 4. Almost done. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How can we draw near to God? Because Jesus makes it possible. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Again, our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed pure with water. It's in Jesus that humanity has entered the nuclear presence of God and survives because of his blood. We shouldn't be able to walk onto that mountain and see him. We shouldn't be able to walk into his presence. We're too sinful. Israel couldn't do it. We can do it today. 
but not because we're better than Israel, but because Jesus is a better mediator. He's come and fulfilled everything that needs to be done so that we can have access to God in this way. The past, it's a long time ago, but if we understand the past, it helps us to appreciate the present. It also gives meaning to the present, right? To know that there was a curtain that you couldn't go into, to know that you had to bring animal sacrifices and now you don't. Not because culture changed, not because God changed, not because man changed. The mediator changed. The mediator changed. Let's look at four points of application as we leave today. And I want to read to you as you're jotting some of these down from Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 helps us to see that there's two mountains of God. One that we've already read about and another one where he sits today and is coming. Verse 18 of Hebrews chapter 12. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. He says, you haven't come to Mount Sinai today. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Is this relevant for today? Absolutely, because the author of Hebrews is quoting from this, right? He's setting up what he's about to say based on the knowledge of the past. We've seen the past today. Now let's see what the future looks like. But you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festival gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks to a better word than the blood of Abel. That's a much safer scene than what we read about in Sinai, right? This is the mountain you come to. But note what he says. Verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warms from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What's the author of Hebrews calling us to there? He's saying the God at Mount Sinai is the same God speaking today from Mount Zion. And we need to listen to him. We need to obey him. Same God at Mount Sinai speaks today. Speaks from a different mountain. Speaks from a different setup where we enjoy him differently. Same holy God, same sinful man, The mediator changes, though, and now he sits at Mount Zion, and he calls us to obedience still, but he calls us to draw near to him. Number two, the author of Hebrews is also telling us the God who came to Mount Sinai is the same God who's coming soon from Mount Zion. We better be prepared for him. Remember how we talked about how the timing of God was always perfect when he would tell the Egyptians and tell Pharaoh he was going to do certain plagues at certain times on certain days, and he always did it? Well, our passage tells us he's coming on the third day, and we're told on the third day he came. We are told that he is coming soon, and soon he comes. And we best be prepared for him. And we best not expect to think that we can walk on that mountain because here's my washed clothes, and here's my, my pure life, and here's how I've tried to obey your commands. Because God's going to say, if that's what you're coming with, you can't come any closer. And if you do, you will die because your good works won't get you to me. 
But when he comes back, if we say, I'm coming to you because I come with a different mediator, I come with Jesus who paid the price and lived the life for me, he says, come. He says, come, and when I shake everything up, you won't be shaken. Number three, be careful in approaching God, but be sure to do so. And do it by relying on a mediator to get you there. The mediator. And number four, if you put your trust and keep your trust in Jesus, you will be part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I don't think you can understand these passages in Hebrews without understanding the passage in Exodus 19. It just doesn't, it doesn't resonate. It doesn't make sense, right? So something that happened thousands of years ago that doesn't even impact how we do things today because we don't do them like that still has such relevance because it teaches us why we do the things that we do today, how we get to do the things that we do today to appreciate those things. My hope is that you can understand those things in such a way where you enjoy it and you can share that truth with others. That You can be different than Nate Bargatze. You can say, here's what we got and I know why we got it and how it works. Let me tell you about it. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for this passage today. We thank you for whoever wrote Hebrews and for the truths that he brings to light in light of what we've read today from Exodus 19. God, we are thankful for the different mediator that's provided. Moses was great, but Jesus is far greater. We appreciate all Moses did, but we worship Jesus because of what he's done for us. Thank you for cleansing us. Thank you for consecrating us. Thank you for making it right for us to be close and near to you. God, we realize you haven't lowered your standard of holiness. You're still a fearful God. And we're right to be afraid of you in some ways. We're right to be in awe of you. It ought to drive us to be obedient to you, not just because of what you've done for us, but because of who you are. God, help us to be awestruck by you today as we leave. Help it to impact our week and the choices and the decisions that we make. When we're, when we're tempted to be frustrated with others, when we're tempted to, to backbite and to gossip and to tear others down, when we're tempted to be unfaithful to people, God, I pray that we would be driven to, to, to make right decisions that honor you because of who you are and your holiness, and you've called us to be holy as you are holy. God, we thank you that Jesus makes it possible us, even in our failures, to still be counted holy in your eyes. Lord, help us to give, it the, give us the confidence that we need to run to you at all times when we need your forgiveness, when we need your care, when we just need you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.